everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. You're in the team room, just me this time. However, we have Morgan Houston on for part two of your kind of Air Force special warfare history lesson that we have. Um, Morgan, appreciate you joining us again and, and carving out some time to hop on and, and finish up. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I had so much fun last time. I'm ready to go for round two. Yeah, man. Well, like like we talked about, uh, the we left off, if I remember right, um, and, and get me to correct, we left off kind of where CCT in the 1950s, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so we kind of we talked about TAC P and and PJs in the uh, in the Korean War, but with uh, controllers it was a little bit different. They weren't necessarily as active, and in fact, I really can't find any evidence of them being in Korea because most of the time during the fifties they were fighting for their own survival. There was a battle between the Army and the Air Force of who was going to control the Pathfinder mission. The Army thought it was something that they needed. They were worried about providing security to teams if the Air Force was going to be able to secure their own teams as they were working. So, and at the same time, the Air Force was deciding if they actually wanted to have a physical human providing the mission. They were pushing hard for technological um, solutions to a problem that, and as we always know, you know, humans are more important than hardware. <laughs> and this is, I think, a point where it really came in. During the uh, the early 50s, there was a shift of the Pathfinder mission from Tactical Air Command, which is ACC now, to at first the 18th Air Force and then eventually the Military Airlift Command, the predecessor of AMC. And so as they were doing this, they had... Mac had seen the, the success of the Rebecca and Eureka beacons. If you remember from the last episode, mm -hmm. the, the beacons that brought about the success and the drops in, especially in Italy and Northern Africa. And they thought, well, do we really need people? Can we do this where it's an automated process, push it out the door, and then eventually lead our teams and, and airborne forces? But as things continue to go, um, the the teams kind of coalesced into what we see is for the longest time was the modern combat control team, which was an officer and 11 to 13 enlisted guys. And then as the officers began to get a little bit more rank, they began to advocate for it and say, Hey, look, there's always problems. We always need to, to fix things. And as teams were going, they were trying to figure out where they wanted to put them. So they were putting the combat control teams in aerial port squadrons and as the technology for communications and beacons began to improve, there was a realization that no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't automate the process. And then eventually, there was the understanding, which is something that is common throughout history of our career fields, is that you need someone who has a set of air-mindedness, an airman who can talk to other airmen. And as the Army continued to advocate to steal that Pathfinder mission back, the Air Force started to finally realize that they needed to control it. The problem was, is they were having a hard time keeping people. There wasn't a combat control AFSC. It was air traffic controllers who volunteered for jump school. And <laughs> that became an issue because people saw jump school as inherently dangerous. They didn't want to get hurt. So they were actually struggling to get volunteers to go to a selection process. But, um, 
1955, there was a conference that was held that was the whole purpose was to address this issue. It was Scott Air Force Base and the the CCTs, where where were we going to fit them within the AFSC structure? What code are we going to give off officers? And then are we going to give everyone the J prefects, which if you're in the Air Force, you understand that's a jump slot. There's certain things that we're going to have. But that was the biggest thing. But the the numbers continue to grow and the success of combat controllers continue to just show that their importance. And eventually by 1956, there were 11 combat control teams assigned to troop carrier wings. And that in totaled 140 men. So 14 members per team, one officer, 13 enlisted guys, which included radio maintainers and radio operators in, in addition to air traffic controllers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then it was also that year that a Colonel Harry Bishop created the outline, which kind of set the standard for what combat control was going to be all the way to today. And those, um, those outlines included in orders of priority, air traffic control, landing zones and drop zones, communications, and close air support. Now, those have changed and, and morphed as the years have gone by, but that was the initial thing that set us up. And then as this goes in, things start to change. The Air Force changes. Numbers change, but the combat Which controllers... Which always does. Always does. <laughs> combat controllers are still trying to figure out where they're going to be. And as they get into the aerial port squadrons, it really kind of gives them a solid fix of where they're going to be. And they fit in with this group of people and it kind of culturally fits early on in that, you know, aerial port squadrons are all about bringing people and goods into the post, into, into base and all of these things. And it kind of is a deployed extension of that. <clears throat> and this is where, you know, as the, the money begins and we start to see more people advocate for combat controllers, one prime example was a CCT officer from the 3rd Aerial Port Squadron in the 60s, Captain Nightingale. And his he just kept screaming at people until they got money to give people what they needed. We needed better communications gear. We needed better training. Sometimes money. it works. And it worked for him. Um, and eventually what happened was is that the, the issues got up to Air Force commanders, like the 9th Air Force commander – he he actually sent a letter to the tactical air command um, commander and said, hey, you guys are screwing with my money, and which means I can't land planes. So you need to give me – and it eventually worked to the point where they were now solid numbers. They were working on creating a career field. The only problem was, unlike today, reserve units just weren't getting doing the training or getting the money, and they just – it was – really hard again to keep people who volunteered and it was because mostly because there wasn't a cohesive unit there wasn't a set training pipeline there wasn't a set identity of who combat controllers was were and this kind of really changes as we get into the future but it was the 1950s that really brought about the the cultural shift into what became combat control because as people began to understand how important this is, we were starting to get some guys who came in from our sister services who really um, set the stage. And, and it's some of the big names like Bo Bellini and, you know, Jim Howell and Charlie Jones. And as these names, you know, they're, they're going to keep popping up throughout history. 
Yep. And it really what it is is it because the, if there's one thing about these things that we call aspect wars that kind of culturally, while we don't match the rest of the sister services, we also don't necessarily match the Air Force. <laughs> so the, you, you don't, don't say. say. <laughs> yeah, really, it's a shocker. Yeah, I mean, because you you made the comment earlier um, about looking for a technological solution mm-hmm. and automation and the air force is always like it, you don't realize that they're looking at that all the way back in the 50s it's like how can we cut the human out of the loop you know to to alleviate human error and that kind of stuff and you're like well sometimes that's where the magic is mm-hmm. you know and it's other services have it that is more human based in aspect war we are more human based but you know we at the same time we still do like our gadgets Mm-hmm. We like our shiny things, you know, we do. Um, so it's it's interesting that, like, we were already thinking that as a service all the way back in the 50s. Well, in the, in the 1950s is so unique just as a cultural as America. Like, we that's when you get the fun ads of, like, all the gadgets to help your housewife, you know, be more efficient. And you have the cities the, of the future and popular mechanics. And so, of course, it's going to match in the in this military because – Sometimes socially, the military is a bit of a precursor to what happens in the rest of society, but it's really interesting. Yeah, we're a microcosm for sure. That is so true. But as the the 50s and 60s come to an end, that's really what brings us to where I think, well, I I, I did say somewhat controversially last time that rescue didn't didn't start in Vietnam, but I think as a group, the career fields kind of coalesced into what we set into motion what we would become in Vietnam. You know, all of the tactics, techniques, and procedures for rescue really kind of became what they are. We understand it, how it worked. The integration of like global access and precision strike really happened in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam and weather. Like weather really took a prominence with one of the names that no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't avoid Keith Grimes. You know, the like the things that he did like, how do we not have, like, books written about him? Like, massive <laughs> books. That guy is something else. But, in but that, you could say that again uh, about a bunch of people. Your your uh, Clyde Howards, mm-hmm. your Mike Lampies, your J.K. Corns, your, your, you know, Wayne Norads. I, I, and it can keep, keep going and going and going, right? And each There's of just, those names pop up frequently in every time. text that you read. Yeah. And it's like Jim Howell. Like, Jim you Howell. mentioned, you know, Crutchfield. I just name after name and, and it's, it's incredible. It really is. So in, in v, you know, the, the majority of the stuff that you find is actually about very small aspects of the career field, with the exception of the, the PJs, right? PJs are probably our most written about of the four just because, yeah, I mean, well, they got, they've got some freaking heroes and incredible mm-hmm. people over there too. You know, there, I mean, who doesn't like the idea of a good rescue, right? That's why they get written about because, and the hair, you know, it's the hair. <laughs> Even back then, the hair was a big thing. We don't have it. Um, But like one of some of the more interesting things in Vietnam, because this is when you have like your Dwayne Hackneys and your Pitts and Pitts and Boggers and all that stuff. Like great movie, the the last full measure about Pitts. It was awesome. But the one thing that really stood out to me was the the role that PJs played in Sante, the 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 ridiculous raid that was the most successful failure in Vietnam, the Suntay raid. And that was really what I think showed the joint force, how relevant and how important personnel rescue is to the entirety of everything that we do. 
And so like, it's always been important. It was really big in Vietnam, but it always almost like feels when you read recounts of some of these great rescues, it was always felt like a one-off. It was this one time, Hey, they came and got us. Hey, that was awesome and everything. But as the mission planning around Sunte happened and the execution of it, PJs and the air rescue and recovery service and the rescue pilots were so integrated in such a big part of the mission set that after afterwards it really set the stage for how pararescuemen were going to be viewed throughout the rest of the force and so it's one of those things it's there were so many just rescue related aircraft and air crew there were two c-130es two hc-130s one hh3 helicopter five hh53s and five a1es all tied in either to air rescue and recovery or were associated it through its observation and cast mission kind of thing. And it was just so wild that so many of these people who, you know, at times in Vietnam, these, these people from pararescue men, combat controllers, weather attack peas were just so not known. It wasn't yeah. even that they were just ignored. It's just that no one knew what they could do or what they could be. And then as that ties in, you can see where, at the time, we weren't necessarily inherently working together as a, as career fields, you know, doctrinally, but there was this like handshake tie in that all of us are going to do all of these things together. Because when you start after thinking about what Sante did for PJs, you know, you you got and you've had guests who've talked about it with Mike Lampke yep. and Jay Ukraine, all those guys. It's just like, but those kinds of things, what they were doing were establishing the ability for not only close air support, landing planes, but also assisting in recovery. I mean, there were combat controllers in Laos who were providing medical aid because they were the only Americans that were there. You know, yeah, they, and it was it all ties in together and it all integrates very, very well and in, in each of the the kind of gaps in the market or the 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 weakness weaker areas, you know the the other career field is able to really bolster that well i think the prime example is going back is to keith grimes you know he was a meteorologist through through education he was a certified forward air controller he was uh assisting on civil action air force missions where he was treating leprosy <laughs> oh, i know gosh. like he they, the only case that a, that a u.s military person treated leprosy in all of Southeast Asia during those wars was Keith Grimes after a jump of all things like this dude did everything like he was it was unbelievable and it just shows how you know you know everyone gets you know I, I think about it when I talk to these kids on the discord server about how you know they want to focus on these one things it's like no but we do everything yeah you know we you have to be able to do a little bit of everything otherwise you're just not going to be successful. And it's like, you think about, there was a small airfield in, um, in Thailand where the only people were there were the six combat controllers after they had built the airfield, they landed, they set it up and they had no security. So at night they had to do patrols of two mm -hmm. controllers around just to ensure their security. And it wasn't until they got security forces there with a helicopter that they were able to actually get some decent crew rest so that they weren't an inherent risk to landing airplanes, you know? So Vietnam, I think, 
was one of these spaces where the ideas of what we want, what we're going to become really coalesced. You know, you see the, the, the global access really being the big thing in Vietnam. Now, granted, the controllers did cast and they yeah. were great at it. But really, I think of the 22 silver stars that controllers got in Vietnam, a lot of them were for heroics under fire, still landing aircraft or performing lapes drops or things like that. And it's just like unbelievable that, yep, I'm just going to sit in this hole and I'm going to talk to planes and land them. Oh, there's there's a mortar round. Oh, you know, and it's just like yeah. it reminds me of, you know, any guy who's been an early GWAT guy knows what it's like to be on the mic and then hear something going. Yeah. So it's yeah. I it's crazy that you said how many silver stars? Twenty two. So twenty two silver stars uh during Vietnam. And that is this is gonna sound like I'm taking away from the folks now. Because mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from the folks now, but, uh, and maybe it's just because, you know, it was Vietnam and now it was, it was GWAT where people were doing incredible things. So, you know, everybody's getting BSMs, everybody's getting mm-hmm. silver stars and, you know, so maybe, maybe it's that, but it does seem like it was in order, like people are getting awarded correctly now, back then, imagine what they did back then to get a silver star because they, that was not a, a, a big thing putting in people for medals no. back then. Well, and, and unlike so many others in Vietnam, you're not getting a PJ or a controller who's going to be a draftee. Right. So it's just, they're, they're there to do the jobs. I, I had an old commander who used to say, you know, as a TACP, you're a triple volunteer, right? You volunteered for the air yeah. force. You volunteered for for TACP, and then at the time, not everyone was a jumper, so we were all airborne. So, like, there's three times, and it's the same thing now through all of these things that you have to do. And, like, but now back then in Vietnam, most of the TACP was non-volved, you know, so it's like they're pulling a pilot out of a cockpit. He doesn't want to be there. He wants to be in in a cockpit. You're taking radio guys, the old romance, radio operator, maintainers, and drivers, radio poor radio maintainers, and be like, I'm just going to sit here and go do this now. And, and I'm going to wait, what I'm going to have to go drive. <laughs> I'm going to get shot at what is happening to me right now, you know? And then that was the, really, the, that was the foundation of what is now modern tack P was an enlisted dude who, because he was there on the ground in Vietnam, he was learning just kind of through osmosis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because one of the the funniest things I heard was when when generals were hearing about controllers enlisted controllers controlling airstrikes, the direct quote was that he threw a temper tantrum of all time. And so there were going to be times, and you can find kind of like tangential references to it of TACP teams where the ALO goes down, and then the poor radio maintainer has to get on the mic and just be like, "Okay, I heard the the officer saying this thing. I think this is it." You know, they didn't have tech techniques, you know, officially written down about how to do a talk on yeah. Both controllers and TACP teams were doing these things, figuring them out, exploring them. I, you know, one of the best examples you see in media was we were soldiers, the movie yeah. where they they have that was just a great idea showing showing them and showing what that looked like. And it's just like that whole TACP thing. And then, yeah, it's just all of this. And, and it was such a fluid environment. And it's funny, I don't I didn't think about it till I was doing research for all of this, like how we should have we I'm sure some of the 
the big brains were doing it. But like there was such a a correlation between that and what we were doing in early GWAT, right? Like it's not the same, but we could have we can take lessons and we can learn from it and, and understand how that worked. And it's just it's funny to see how just that keeps turning around and keeps coming back. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good scene. I, I know exactly the one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It really is a good scene, and uh, and the kind of learning through it, and also you know, oh oh shit, I just messed up. Mm-hmm. Like, or or maybe he didn't mess up, but maybe he just brought it in too too close. And that I mean that still happens today. Mm-hmm. Well, we have conversations. We have a a former 18 Delta in the D- Discord server, and he talks yeah. about how his group wouldn't take Air Force guys for a while because of a fratricide. You know, and that's part of what, and this kind of goes in with all of the history. We're always having to fight for our place at the table because who thinks about Air Force and what we do? It wasn't until the last 15, 10, 15 years that now you can say, I was a JTAC and the Army knows exactly what they are and they get excited for it. Or I I had a dude I knew when I was living in Denver and he was like, oh yeah, PJ saved my life. Like without a doubt, PJ saved my life. And now it's become, and I think it's mostly because of social media. We've gotten better at, at advertising. But back in Vietnam in the 80s and 90s, you know, reading about Coach Carney having to advocate for where he fits and having to have the MAC commander call General Downing and say, no, if you want my aircraft, you're going to have a controller there with you. Yep. Right. And it's just kind of rolling into is that kind of natural. <laughs> It's safety, safety of, yeah, and it's a safety of flight thing, and that's mm-hmm. that's why they're they're doing it. And man, you bring up Coach Carney, I I've had conversations with him on the phone. I am still just trying to like he's he's we I know Weasley sounds bad, but like he's able to friggin' oh, evade the shit out of me. Like, I met him briefly at Combat Control School before I, I washed out there, and just I shook his hand, didn't have a deep conversation, but I just heard him, and you're just like. And then it's like, that's right as you're learning who these people are. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. So we're trying to get him on the podcast, but coach it's, is, is amazing. Man. He's an amazing guy. And, and, uh, Howard, he's a, he, so Clyde Howard's son, Tommy Howard has been hooking me up with, you know, JK and, and, mm-hmm. uh, several other people and coach Carney and, and Crutchfield. So trying to get, <laughs> trying to get all that scheduled is uh is tough yeah <laughs> but i mean as you know it's to to you know get you let's use those names you know as we talk yeah. about it you know vietnam it's it's easy to find it's actually one of the few times that you have no problem trying to find the information about our career fields except for weather because those weather guys are sneaky which is why they do what they do now <laughs> you know grimes is the big one but he still continues to play a role but it was after Vietnam when, as times slowly changed and there was a shift in focus from kind of the, the big aspect of the Cold War, we're going to have these massive fights, to this counterterrorism thing, which we know now, but they didn't really understand. That's when we – the example that Forrest Marion, who is um, the writer of um, Brothers and Berets, which is kind of the history of combat control slash special tactics – he uses the in I always get it wrong in Tebby, the um, the, it was the hijacking of a of a plane where they were in and the Israeli IDF rescued them and that was kind of the the issue in the in the in 1977, which is a really big year for a lot of things, mm-hmm. and that's when there was the discussion from the Joint Chiefs of Staff about to Charlie Beckworth 
about, hey, we need this counterterrorism thing. Why don't we have anything like the SAS? And he goes, well, I've been trying. <laughs> and then because of that, you have the commanders of Mac and the chief staff of the Air Force going, well, what do we have? And that's when Keith Grimes says, hey, coach, you want to take over something? You want to do something kind of cool? <laughs> and, you know, for the reason, you know, the reason, so everyone knows, the reason coach was called coach is football tied in through all his time. He was an assistant football coach at the Air Force Academy, and he just kind of tied that in. And then they eventually came up in the 70s and 80s with something called Brand X. And Brand X was a small team of, at first, guys elsewhere in aerial port squadrons and detachments everywhere, and it was just coach. And he'd be like, I need you, I need you, I need you, we're going to do a thing. Which caused some issues, it was really hard. Early on in these in these days, you know, combat control still wasn't technically a soft force. It was a conventional force. And Jays weren't tied in with it. They were in rescue squadrons. TACPs were not official until late in 1977 was the creation of the career field. You know, so it was like we were all disjointed and everything. And then Colonel Grimes said, Coach, who was a young captain at the time, we need to figure this thing out. Yeah. And then what really sparked everything Really, And it was really kind of the changing force of special operations and, you know, kind of warfare in general was the the assault and occupation of the American embassy in Tehran. And as everyone's trying to get validated as a counterterrorism force, the Rangers, the, you know, the the those counterterrorism units in North Carolina, the planning had to start happening. And they had to validate and create these units. And as brand X comes a thing even more so, you get some of the names we've talked about earlier, Jim Howe, Mike Lampy, you know, Corrent, all these guys who are now, these. this is what they're doing. They're creating these things in Charleston Air Force Base, South Carolina. And they are doing mission prep, mission planning. Coach goes into Iran by himself and sets up a box in one. And he, like... In a Cessna. I don't think people understand just how, like, I got a little dirt bike. I'm going to take yep. some soil samples, and I'm going to put some some lights in the ground that we may use, we may not. Like, like Coach <laughs> Coach had some big brass ones on him, you know? Yeah. It is just like how – and he's just like nothing nothing else, right? And this is when, you know, they're split into teams. They're, they've got a north and south airfield. Um, there is plenty have been written about Desert One and Operation yeah. Eagle Claw. If you want to check it out, it's super easy. But the the – the the parts that the combat controllers played in that in that was just spectacular. You had Mike Lampy on the ground, Jim Howell on the ground, a bunch of other names, and it's just it's unbelievable to see that just within the space of like two or three years, it went from Ranger battalion commanders saying, "I don't want any of these controllers anywhere near me," because at the time they you know they didn't have good tactics, they were weren't physically fit, they just weren't these things into coach taking a couple of guys and then setting the standard and which usually happens is that from these units you know the the things filter down trickle down yeah and then they continue to to train and you know unfortunately desert one was a failure but in a different way the controllers really didn't add have anything to do with with the failure aspect their planning went very well they did exactly what they were supposed to do and it, it, yeah, you're right. The operation, sorry, the operation was a failure. Yes, but I mean that is what kind of was the 
the impetus to cr- the creation of SOCOM mm-hmm. with the Goldwater Nichols Act in 86 and then SOCOM established in 87 to bring everybody mm-hmm. under one umbrella. I mean, that's so, yeah, failure, I guess, silver lining there. Well, and it's usually, as we always say, you know, I mean, you guys have said it on this podcast so many times. It's like we learn more from failure than we do from success. Oh, yeah. You know, and then that was a definitely case of the bureaucracy moving in a way that you normally don't see, like from 79 to 86 and 87 is pretty big turnaround for national level speed. Yeah. And, you know, and at this time, you know, it, during all of that, as the controllers are, are doing this thing and. PJs are still doing PJ things, you know, there's not a lot that they were talking about. There's, but like the big thing for, I know for, for my career field was 1977, we have the creation of the TACP career field. It was at the time the tactical air command and control specialist, really weird, but um, it was really just this idea of we're going to take these guys. We can no longer start keep picking guys out of radio maintainers. They just don't have the skill set. They have to defend themselves. They have to do all of these things. And this is where I love doing history, where I like being a a historian is as I look at the history and compare between combat controllers and TACPs, I see us offset. Like we see a lot of the things in the TACP career field that the controllers have gone through. Those things that y'all have gone through to struggle to get to where you're at, we're going through just that, you know, 30 years later, 20 years later. And that's why I love like the fact that we are all kind of together now under this whole aspect war umbrella. Because I know we can learn a lot from y'all, and there's a lot of things that I think you guys mm-hmm. can learn from us as well. You know, oh yeah, we've got that conventional side that's a little bit different <laughs> than the rest of you guys, you know. But I think you know as we see that, then we see some of these major small. It's really just funny to say these major small events that happen. 1983, we had we see Grenada, right? I, that's where we have again some successes, some failures. Um, we have that you know, horrendous jump where a bunch of Navy SEALs died. Um, they were drowned. None of the controllers, uh, all of the controllers survived. So that wasn't a big issue, but you have this, you know, it was to the point now where your joint, your joint special operations commander was like, no, we need to have controllers here on this airfield at points Linus so that we can see and we can land guys and we get the Marines in and we can do these things. And it's just, it's, it's so interesting to see how in such short spans of time, because of our adaptability, because of our ability to operate small, just to be, I don't care about rank. I'm a young Aaron A1C. I'm going to tell you, sir, this is how this works, you know? And it's just, it, it ingratiated us into, into the ability to, to be integrated in important assets. And, you know, Grenada, we were able to rescue the Americans there, get them out of the, the that was the main aspect, rescue Americans, fight Cubans, all these great things. And then, as our culture within the military is changing the idea of special operations, special operations forces, you know, as we said, in 96, the Goldwater Nichols Act created U.S. SOCOM, which also created the sister services, special operations commands, as well as joint special operations command. And this is when the separation begins to disappear of the four career fields. You know, in October 1987, the combat control squadrons are no longer so. Yep. We had the, oh man, I got to remember all the numbers. The <laughs> 17th, 21st, the 17th, 22nd, the 17th, 23rd, and the 17th, 24th yep. combat control squadrons. And then they get shifted around, they get changed, 
And this is really where Coach Carney, I think, really does his thing. He says, no, I don't want to just have combat controllers anymore. I need PJs. I need Sauties. And he brings and coalesces everyone together under the 1720th Special Tactics Group. And then eventually the ones drop, the sevens drop from the squadrons, and you have the two one, the two two, two two three. And then as all of this is happening, you also have the creation of Joint Special Operations Command, and you have the two four. You know, which for those of us in, everyone knows, you know, that's the shining beacon on the hill that everyone aspires to. Well, not everyone, most, but um, <laughs> you know, it's it's these times as times go about. You know, Coach Carney was the first group commander, which we didn't have a wing at the time. Um, the, the you know, we're starting to shift from, at the time, for on the conventional side, we have the tactical air, tactical air control squadrons are shifting to air support operations squadrons. We are creating more people at this time in the 80s is that we see the advent of the ETAC, the Enlisted Terminal Attack Controller, yep. <laughs> which also I think is really important for the way that shifts and shapes our future. Because they realize, the Air Force does, that, hey, we spend a ton of money on these pilots to be pilots. And we have so many that we're, and we're not able to provide the support that the Army needs. And as the continuing trend throughout the basis of Air Force Special Warfare, the Army wants to take it back. The only thing they never want to take is PR, right? They never want that. They never want it. They like, nope, nope. But they want, they want their own um controllers they want their own tactics they want they even want their own weather guys you know and it's just like it's one of those things that we constantly have to fight to maintain our control of what really in essence should be ours right there is a level of necessity in having someone who has that air force mindset we always joke in the tactics world that we're too blue for the army but too green for the air force <laughs> but that's important that's by design it's the way that it's built up in that i can speak to that battalion commander that company commander and be like sir this is how we're going to do it we're going to do these things but then when i get on the mic i can talk to an aircraft and i can speak in their language we're a translator you know the advise and assist to control thing that that we, we always talk about so i think it's really interesting like those 80s and then it, it really is verified and, and validated in 89 in panama and this is where we see, you know, you got the Rangers jumping in, and this is where we have both controllers and TACPs with the Ranger Regiment. We have the controllers taking over and, and running air at the uh, the airports there in, in Panama. Mm -hmm. You know, funny, last episode I was talking about how my uncle was a, a, a previous uh, – well, I had family in Panama at the time. <laughs> they, I have cousins who live in Panama, and they were there during <laughs> – in the, the invasion so that was a little wild um but yeah it's it's really shows that you know we as we coalesce around this idea of special tactics and global access and and because all of it comes in there you have your weather guys doing you know doing weather things and then you have your controllers assessing and, and surveying and controlling and controlling air and then you have your joint your jsoc guys doing jsoc things with Air Force JSOC guys, and then you have TACPs doing conventional things with the 82nd and the regiment, and all of these things are coalescing with each other, and it just continues on into the 90s where we have Desert Storm and or Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and you have at this point the 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 fullness of being a soft community with CCT and PJ really kind of comes in as we're getting attached and tied into SF teams who are doing scud hunting 
as we are doing the invasion, like all of these things get tied in and you have the TACPs with the conventional forces, 101st, 82nd, you know, all of the armored divisions. And as it ties in, it really does. It's just, you see it as it, it's the hindsight is 2020. You can see it and you can see these kernels of how we're going to become and how we're going to fight these next wars. Now, granted, it's easy to look back because it's already yeah. happened, but like you can see kind of, you can see how the world is going to shape in our little small world of things. And Desert Storm really is, I mean, one, it was kind of the first conventional fight that had been fought since World War II because it was force on force, armor on armor. It wasn't as big as, say, like the invasion of Iraq in 03, but like you're seeing some of these things that we haven't really done in a while because Korea was, well, it was Korea, it was a UN fight, it was kind of insurgency, it kind of wasn't. But then Vietnam was purely jungle. We have the Jungle Gym program. Coin was kind of created there. And so it's like, oh, counterinsurgency. Sorry, guys. I went full on <laughs> acronym there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Then, it's, we're guilty of that, too. <laughs> yeah. But then you think about it, too. Like the first strike was a joint mission between Apaches with air cover from Air Force aircraft. And then you have guys controlling air, like the luminaries of, of younger stuff. And then. Oh, man, there was so much there in those. It was, it's pretty awesome to see it. It's like, as it turns in and then as I, I'm kind of trying to get to, to, you know, we have the Balkan wars. If I know this is one that probably a lot of the young guys don't know about, you know, we have Kosovo and Bosnia. And this is, I think where the controller ETAC slash JTAC really made their bones, you know, because you're doing a lot of controlling and it really was controllers. It wasn't, tack piece as much there were some there you know that we were still doing the soft tack p thing but it just wasn't as what it is now yeah but you know, you know those not to downplay that but that was not as robust of an operation Mm-mm. as as you know your your afghanistan iraq kind of thing like it was very mm-hmm. surgical but that i think that's really where the bread and butter of what a jtac was going to be came from mm-hmm. because the lessons learned from Bosnia and Kosovo were ones that we were, we instantly implemented after nine 11, you know, because how, how do we have, how do we use these munitions in a tight confined space of an urban environment? You know, I, I remember sitting at, at what is now the Chapman annex, listening to the controller instructors who had been there. Yeah. You know, I was already in awe of guys like Sergeant man and and sergeant bean and all these guys like and i was like hearing them talk about like you know when i was in bosnia i'm like wait what well you yeah know? i mean because because uh chief bean he's he was one of the dudes that was on general goldfein's mm-hmm. rescue and okay. the most unassuming dude that you've ever seen in your life like he is a mike lampy looking dude you know and it's just like oh my gosh how like how are these guys such studs and it's just like and I don't know if, because uh, I have these guys pictured in my mind when I met them at 19, 18, 19 years oh, yeah, old, yeah. you know, like Sergeant Mann. I'm sure, I think you probably met him when you were going yeah, to the dog. And like, he, he's that Mike Vinning, Mike Lamy, Lampy kind of, he looks like a dad <laughs> and he's a stud, you know, it just, it blows me away. Actually, Ron, Ron Mann was, was one of my favorites uh, going through Indoc just because, you know, I, I had... Tony Alexander, who was a phenomenal PJ. We had, you know, Blake George, who is now a crow. Um, we had Dave Swan, Doug McClure, um, 
man, I feel bad because now I'm going to forget a couple of Kirby, mm-hmm. uh, Rodriguez. See, um, I was right you know, there, right behind you. Yeah. You? So it's like, I and, just, those guys were something else. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Jerry Souls, you know, mm-hmm. and, like all these guys. And Rodman was one of my favorites because I he was always fair. Mm-hmm. He always had maintained the same tone, even keel, you know, and, and he'd be very professional and, you know, Peaches, you guys messed up today, didn't you? Oh, yeah, Sergeant. Because you know you're going to pay. Like, yep. Oh, yeah, Sergeant. And then, and then it, it was never, you, you always knew it wasn't malicious. Like, I know cones now, they, they're like, oh, it's personal, and they're just trying to get, listen, it's not personal. Like, they're actually scheduled smoke sessions. Yeah. That, you know, or extracurricular training or whatever you want to call it. But there are smoke sessions that are planned and scheduled. Now that doesn't mean that if you don't mess up, you're going to make you the devil and you're going to pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Ron Man was always nice and fair and just real professional. I loved it. He raised his voice with me once, and I 100% deserved it because I yelled at an officer as a young airman. And I mm, no, don't do that, young people. Don't as an airman. Don't <laughs> scream at an officer. That's a mm-mm. that's a no no. I deserved that. I, I that was a chew out that I deserved. So. Yeah. It's a, it, you, you, now we're getting to the names. I mean, obviously I do name, you know, coach and, mm-hmm. and Howard and all the kind of days before him, but now it's, it's interesting. Cause I didn't realize that you, you went in right around the same time as I did. I, I'm about a year behind you. I, okay. I joined in August of 2000 yep. trying to, you know, trying to be a combat controller. And I was like right there two weeks two weeks from getting that, that beret. And I screwed up. I, uh, <laughs> hey, I had, a, we all screw integ- up. Yeah. I had an integrity violation and it was my, my own damn fault. Right. And so the, and the cadre there was so great when I, when that happened, I, 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 you know, they were like, Hey man, you screwed up. I screwed up. Let me tell you this story. Every single one of them, like chief Gilmain was one of my instructors that, yeah. the, you know, that I was there at that time, time frame And like, the Heaviston boys, I was there with, I went through that with that, with, with some of, I can't remember if it was Andy or Sean that I went through. Um, and in then 2000? Like, yeah, 2000. I had to mention Sean. I think it was Sean. Yeah. I, I can remember him by his back tattoo. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, so it's just like, you see these guys and now that as we get closer, it's just like, you can see as these through lines continue on. And it's just like, we chat with these guys and everything. And it's like, I see the names come up and you're like, I know that guy. And it's no longer history and it becomes real. Like Derek Argel, I remember him getting his stump, right? And like how these things and like the the guys that you know who are through and like now we're talking about guys that we know like <clears throat> who just are continuing to do these things or they're legends within your lifetime like Tommy Case. I never got to meet Tommy and it's just like, I'd love to, you know, but then you have your, you know, your, your John Chapman's and your Jason yeah. Cunningham's and your scrappy Vance's and all these guys who are legends within our, our career fields, but they're still either alive or the reason we were alive when, when they were when something happened to them. And it's, yep. but then you can tie it all the way back to these times and these people that we can see and we hear these legends. And it's when I start to get proud that I have spent this time and I've learned these things and I, I can be a small yet insignificant part of this grander history that brings us into where we are now and what we are doing and the great things that I think the career fields are doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it, and it's only going to continue to evolve. Like you, you, you made a good comment earlier about, hey, it's easy to look back in hindsight and go, okay, well, we made these decisions, we navigated this, the this kind of operation, and we we inserted ourselves in certain areas and and saw the importance of it. But maybe we did. Maybe maybe guys like Mike Lamby and and Coach Carney, and not take it away from them, of course, you know, because they they probably did have a vision or an idea of what it needed to be, but there's a good chance that a lot of them just kind of, it just kind of worked out and fell and went that direction too, because there's only, you can only guess so much of what the, what's going to be needed. It's kind of like us now, you know, people, people are upset because we're not act. I mean, yes, we are actively engaged in some operations, but can't talk about it here, but you know, your big operations, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, stuff like that is gone. Um, we are still doing things. We don't know what the future operation is going to look like. We don't know what the landscape of the world is going to look like. And so for you to kind of be upset while like something's not going on, just wait. Just wait a little bit because you're going to get involved in something, I promise. I say that <laughs> so much. So I'm I know we kind of talked about it a little bit last, but I'm I'm very I'm fairly active within the Discord server that we have for for the hopefuls and the candidates yep. and the cones, and you know guys, const- that is constantly every time we get it. Like I know when you guys post the link to the Discord, because we have an influx of new guys, right? And it's the <laughs> there's the que- the same question, the similar questions to what you guys have that that you are like despise answering the same things like, am I going to see combat? Well, what do we do now that we have we are no longer at war? It's like, bro wait yep, like just wait when you and i joined we weren't at war we, i thought we were no. going to be doing kosovo and bosnia maybe go do here here thing there and then all of a sudden our world changed and we did not know what that was going to look like for the and who none of us thought that it was going to take 20 years you know and like i heard it the other no. day there there was an attack on american forces in erbil which having been in erbil and i'm like never thought i'd hear that again yeah you know Right? So it's like, <laughs> hold on, homies, it's going to come, <laughs> you know, it, if you're in one of these four career fields, you're going to be doing something all the time. Doesn't yep. matter if it's at war, if it's fit, if it's unconventional warfare stuff, like there's guys in Poland right now, there's guys like this is all stuff like I'm obviously not plugged in. I've been out for 20 years. So nothing I'm going to no, say. But you can unclassed. look, you can look at the so. news and go, okay, mm-hmm. there's people, there's, there's people here. There's people mm-hmm. there. You, I mean, like, like it's not, we're not behind a, a veil of secrecy yeah. here. Like if you just pay attention to the news, you can go, okay, well, mm-hmm. we probably have somebody there. Yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, and as always, just give it a go. You never know. You may love, you may love it. Just being a training guy too. Like you're going to, the training is just as cool as the, the going to war part. Well, maybe not as cool, but pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> well, you definitely get to go to some, uh, some kick-ass locations. That is for sure. Again, you're still part of a community that is mm-hmm. extremely tight, um, lifelong friends and the experiences. And we, we talked about this before, but I am so thankful for the experiences I've had, the skills that I've learned, the people that I've, that I've met, I, I mean, I wouldn't have my, my amazing family that I have now. Mm-hmm. Like I just, and, and I have all this thanks to the air force. Now, if I didn't do that, I don't know what I would have done. Right. It's not that I was some hopeless freaking, uh, you know, 17 year old when I came in, but 
like I, I wasn't into school. That wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. I was done with it. Once I graduated, I was like, okay, I need a break. Mm-hmm. You know, college wasn't going to be for me, at least at the very beginning. So, you know, I did that and it was, it was a great decision for me. Mm-hmm. May not be for everybody, but I like, again, I have very few regrets. And I just think about how you're instantly credible within a a community of people that are just so amazing. Like you and I have talked so many times about just how, like we know the same people through the weirdest spaces and the weirdest things. Like you went to weapons school with guys that I know with, we know each other people, but like we've never met outside of this venue yet. Instantly you can check and be like, Hey, this guy is real. Is he real? Or, or, Hey, yeah, he's an okay dude. He's not, you know, and it's, it's awesome that that's even a thing you know, that you can do and just like connects them among such a small group of people who are amazing dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And amazing dudes and, and will will give you the shirt off their back mm-hmm. and do anything for you. And you can call them up, uh, at a moment's notice and all of a sudden some, something's coming through and, and that, that translates directly into the foundations that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the, the TACP Association, the TACP Foundation, the CCT Association Foundation, same with the PJA or the PJ Association, PJ Foundation, uh, the Gray Berets, mm-hmm. the first there. Like, I mean, it's just people want to help yep. and people want to be there for you. Um, and that, again, that goes from being just a normal teammate to being a friend, to being a family friend, to being a foundation or association. People mm-hmm. just want to help. 100%. <clears throat> Go donate to those, those organizations. They're awesome. They need, they yeah. always need all of our help. Yeah, they, they do. Not because they're poorly run. just like, they just, they need help because they are turning around and they are helping us. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the, cause they're not just helping uh, currently serving, they're helping people that are retired. So when you start talking about the, the Vietnam dudes, Yep. You know, I don't think we have any Korean ones around anymore. I don't think It'll so. Probably be there might be a few, yeah. but yeah. There goes that cough. And I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Hit that mute button. Yeah. <laughs> well, what else you got in terms of history? I mean, I know we haven't really touched into the, the GWAT thing, but I mean, there there's so much there that I don't know. There's so much there. And honestly, you guys have done such a great job of talking to the people who were there, you know, it was just, and we really, it's not as a historian, it's really hard to go back and say that because there's not enough distance for us to be objective. Like I can't really touch on it as a historian. One, I was there, you know, that's why I, I don't really touch on it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, but like, you know, that's when, you know, we, I think really it's the, I will say it's probably the third major inflection point of aspect war. You know, I think World War II, Vietnam, and and GWAT are our big points. So I, that if I'll probably leave it on that. You know, and fortunately enough that you can talk to the heroes for most of most of the cases, the guys who did the things. So, and you guys have done a great job with you know, you had so many dudes on who were just <laughs> like studs. That I mean, Dries and and. Tommy and all those guys. It's like, they tell that story way better than I do because I, I become like a fanboy and I start geeking out and they're oh, just dude, like, yeah, Tommy's, I was there. I did Tommy's a stories Jesus. are fantastic. Yeah. And he's a good storyteller too. Mm-hmm. So it helps. Yeah. 
I'm man, I, I feel terrible right now because I I'm looking through some text messages because I cannot remember the dude's name. Um, but there's a guy that is writing a book on it's coming uh, out here soon. It is um visual friendly target, right? And yep, yep. it is um it is he's writing it from a national security um national defense kind of political science perspective. That's his, his background. I know I've shared, I've shared the link. You shared the link in the discord. Um, it is, you're talking about Ethan Brown, Ethan Brown, right? Yeah. That one is, that is awesome. There is also, um, danger close by Steve call is an excellent book. If you want to read that too, it's all, that one's specifically about tack peas in Afghanistan. I think maybe it touches on Iraq. And then there's the, there's a, you know, the plethora of books, you know, you've got, Alone at Dawn by Dan Schilling, um, all the PJ books. Um, the one that hasn't really been touched on, I can think of is, is Weather Guys. Maybe, maybe I can, maybe I'll reach out to the GBA and see like, hey, let's let's do something. You know? <laughs> so like, yeah. those guys, those guys deserve a book. So yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty of stuff. There's some really good ones out there. Yeah. So Visual Friendly's Tally Target by Ethan Brown mm-hmm. uh, supposed to come out doesn't say exactly but i know we're gonna have him we're gonna have him on to chat about it and i guess there's been he, he's gonna have multiple volumes right mm-hmm. now this is in volume one uh it, invasions is what it's called so yeah then you, you already named the books they're phenomenal talking about chapman with shilling and they're just man. if you, if any of you all out there listening are interested i know uh these guys are getting ready to have a another uh book list come out a reading list we actually have one that I curated on the Discord. That is, uh, the intent was for it to be different than theirs. To it, there's some crossover, but it's we have it broken down in sections. Everything from like founding American documents to history of the career fields, leadership, just some good reads. So there's that, there's that too. If you guys really want to dig into some some of that stuff, yeah. No, and I appreciate you putting that together. We got to get our site uh, full up again with the with the reading list we're we're struggling with html that Ugh. kicks Website my ass stuff sucks that's why yeah. other people can do that <laughs> well cool dude well again i appreciate you coming on um well may as well do this now uh so we have partners like you know that we collab with uh onesready.com you can get shirts and stuff like that and flags from us or you can buy attack elite gear there uh, so if you're training for the pipeline and you need kits to get yourself ready Go check them out. Um, have you tried any hoist yet? I haven't. It's been one of those things I just haven't gotten to. I'm kind of in the hinterland, but okay. I will. We'll get I will some sent out, guys. Um, the performance hoodie from One's Ready. I wear it every day. It's sitting right there. It is the best <laughs> thing ever. Appreciate that. Yeah. Now we'll um, we'll get you some hoist sent out there. Where uh, we'll just try the black cherry, dude. I drink hoist. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, maybe in a variety pack, but yeah, drinkhoist.com, promo code one's ready, get yourself a discount, get that subscription. That way you're never worried about it. And then, uh, then you'll be good to go. Well, dude, appreciate you joining us again for part two. Of course. If you guys are looking for me, you guys can hit me up on Instagram at aspect war underscore history and everywhere else I'm whiskey mo, um, which is how most people probably know me from the discord and everything. But if you just Google or not Google, but like go on to any of the social media sites and hit whiskey Mo, that's it. But yeah, aspect war underscore history is where you can find me. Join yeah, the discord. Man. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll, once this launches, we'll post it again and I'll probably post it after this. Cause yeah, you're right. The more people we get on there, 
uh, the better. And it, it's just, it really is a, you guys do phenomenal work out there just in terms of, um, you know, getting the information out there, pointing people in the right direction. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. And so thanks for doing all that work. Of course. I got I got to help where I can. You guys are, you guys are kind of the inspiration behind that anyway. So <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Appreciate you joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave us a review. We're out here. Light up my heart.